0: Hey Yak, welcome back to another Quarantine Podcast. Hope this Monday finds you well. We typically find ourselves on Monday doing a mirror, but because we are sitting in the book of Micah for Yak for the next couple of weeks, and Micah was the mirror this Sunday, we're going to continue our God's Love series this Monday and jump to Proverbs on Tuesday and back to God's Love the rest of the week. Today's lesson might be a little bit longer. I'm not sure if I'm going to break it up into two parts or not. Because the concept as a whole is big, and I want you to begin to wrestle and understand it. I think it'll be a new concept for some of you as we talk about the love of God in relationship to God's loyalty, and specifically how Jesus experienced betrayal. There's a lot we're going to be in today, but the focus is going to be Mark. 15, 33 through 38. But let me kind of set that up. So Jesus experienced betrayal several ways. Um, The last 48 hours of his life, you probably know most of the story at this point. He sits with the upper room with his disciples, enjoys a Passover meal, washes his feet. Judas leaves to betray He speaks to them these last beautiful words, promises a helper, and then they go to the garden of Gethsemane where he prays to the Lord in agony because his hour is at hand and he asks his friends to simply stay up with me and keep watch because he he is in deep agony with what is about to take place to the point where he pleads with the Father that if there's another way to take this cup from me. But what happens? Peter and the other disciples fall asleep on him, not once, not twice, but three times. They could not even stay awake for their master, their dear friend, in his hour of need when there was no other pressure. Think about it. The the Romans are not around. They do not know that the, the Jewish leaders are about to apprehend Jesus. They know nothing of this. Jesus has just washed their feet. They've just had a meal and they can't even keep watch. And then Jesus' hour comes and he's brought to the Jewish leaders and then he's brought before Pilate. And in the whole process, Peter betrays Jesus again, saying that he does not know him and the rooster crows. And then Pilate betrays Jesus. If you read the story, Pilate finds no fault for him, of Jesus. But he panders to the crowd and he violates Roman law, his own office, and the prisoner who stood before him by giving him up to crucifixion. Now, Jesus here, as he heads at crucifixion, becomes cursed by God, right? So he's betrayed by his friends, legal authorities, and the public. There surely would not be anyone left to forsake Jesus, but the climax of Jesus being forsaken is still to come, and it comes at the hand of God himself. Read with me, Mark 15, 33 through 38. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled the sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to drink, saying and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. Now Jesus' screamed words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Come directly from Psalm 22. And the urgent question we must ask, I'm quoting R.C. here because it's just packed full of good information. The urgent question we have to ask is, why did Jesus call out these words? Was it merely to recite Hebrew poetry? Call attention to the witnesses of his execution? To include literal fulfillment of the Messianic Psalm of David? David? Was it, as critics have argued, a cry of sudden panic that God might not vindicate him for his messianic vocation? Did he merely feel forsaken while in reality he was not forsaken? If we are to take the words of Jesus on the cross seriously and link them to an apostolic understanding of his death, we must grant that Jesus not only felt forsaken, but actually was forsaken. And this forsakenness casts a shadow over the concept we are currently exploring, that of the loyal love of God. Think about it. If God's love is the ultimate paradigm for loyal love, how can we explain the Father's dreadful breach of loyalty to his only begotten Son? Now, Paul deals with this in his apostolic explanation, explaining what's going on during the crucifixion of Christ in Galatians. This is what he says, Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on this tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So there's a lot of imperatives there. I want to break it down for you. For Jesus to fulfill his mission of redemption The mission that was conceived in eternity, he had to serve as a substitute for his people. His role of Messiah was to be a suffering servant of Israel, the sin bearer of his people. And to complete that mission, he had to take on himself the punishment that was due those whom he was representing. In terms of the old covenant, the sanctions were dual. They were promises of blessings for obedience to the law and the promise of cursing for the disobedience. So again, it all comes back to the covenant that God made with his people in the Old Testament. And he's speaking here specifically of the Mosaic covenant that God made with his people. And if we look at Deuteronomy specifically, we look at Leviticus, we see that there are dual sections of the law. Namely, that if you follow the law, there will be blessing. And if you break the law, there will be curses. And if you read Deuteronomy, if you read Leviticus, but especially Deuteronomy, you see... The list of curses played out. I'm not going to read those lists for you. But disobeying God is to be under His curse in all things, in all ways, and in all places. Disobeying God leads to a curse. Now, the curse is weird in our culture. Think about it. When we talk about curse, we associate it with like primitive practices, like voodoo religions, like voodoo dolls. But we cannot begin to grasp the significance of the cross or the full measure of the love of God without first having some idea of the biblical concept of the curse. So what is a biblical concept of the curse? In biblical terms, the curse stands in direct contrast. It's the opposite to the concept of blessing. In Old Testament literature, it's an important literary device Of the oracle. And so you'll see the oracle says, and then referring to the curses that are laid about those who break the law of God. And it stands in contrast to the blessing. Now, what is the blessing? Well, for the Jew, the highest possible state of blessing or blessedness was to experience the face of God, direct sight of the face of God. And of course, in Old Testament terms, the direct vision of God was forbidden to fallen humans and was reserved for the saints in glory. By contrast, the curse was related to the absence of God. To be cursed was to have God turn his back on you, to be removed from the blessedness of his presence, to enjoy not the light of his Radiance, but to be sent into what is referred to a lot in the Old Testament of outer darkness. The curse was to be measured in terms of distance between God was from you. And we see this played out, I think, most clearly in Leviticus 16, where it is titled The Day of Atonement. And when he was made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, Le- Leviticus 16, 20 through 22. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness, the outer darkness, by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on himself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So after the blood sacrifice had been sprinkled on the mercy seat, attention was turned in the Old Testament sacrificial system to the scapegoat. By laying his hands on the head of the goat, Aaron symbolically transferred or the big theological term, imputed the sins of his people to the goat. The goat was not slaughtered in the camp where God had punished to be present and meet his people. Rather, the goat was driven into the wilderness, the place of outer darkness, which symbolizes the place of cursing. And when we relate to this, this is to Christ, in Christ's work of the atonement, Christ fulfilled the role of, of the sacrificial lamb whose blood was poured out as an offering of sin this is the work of propitiation by which god by which christ satisfied the demands of god's justice on our behalf but christ also fulfilled the role of the scapegoat carrying our sins into the wilderness this act was the work of what we call in theological terms expiation by which our sins are removed Or carried away from us by Christ. This is why God can say, I have removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. You don't even acknowledge them because they have been expediated outside into the wilderness. In this sense, Christ became, like the scapegoat, a curse for us. And this is how Jesus fulfilled the curse motif. Think about it, when you link the Old Testament Day of Atonement to the Day of Atonement and the Gospels. It is significant that Jesus was not killed by Jewish authorities, but by Romans. For the curse to be fulfilled, the Messiah had to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles, who were strangers to the covenant and were outside the camp. It is noteworthy that Christ's execution was not by the Jewish method of stoning, but by the Roman manner of crucifixion. The curse motif is further evidenced by the astronomical phenomenon of God plunging the world into darkness in the middle of the day. But the fullness of the manifestation of the curse is found in that cry that Jesus cries out to God to be cursed of god is to be forsaken by god for christ's work to be complete for the work of redemption to happen christ actually had to be forsaken by god the father for the first time in all eternity the relationship between the god the father and god the son was broken it was shattered God the father forsook the son as the curse was placed upon him. The father had to turn his back on his own son. And as someone who is a father and has sons, this idea of being away from my son in the midst of his worst moment is terrifying. Both for the father and the son. The Father had to cover his face and not let Jesus see the light of his joy and love. The Apostles' Creed gives us a brief brief summary of what Jesus suffered, right? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and he descended into hell. And this phrase is widely debated. Did Jesus actually descend into hell but really, we're not going to deal with that today. I, I do love how John Calvin deals with this. He argued that Jesus' real descent into hell did not occur after Jesus died but while he hung on the cross. is why he says, hell is the ultimate expression of the curse of God. For Jesus to be a curse for us, he had to endure the full measure of that curse, including the punishment of hell. Jesus experienced the fullness of hell while he was on the cross. His agony there had little to do with physical pain of nails and thorns. It was the agony of bearing the wrath of God in its fullest sense that provoked the cries of the Redeemer. And again, here we're left with the question, how on earth can we speak of the loyal love of God if he was willing to forsake his own son, any attempt to enter this quest, any attempt to answer this question, must begin where we began, back in eternity, with the covenant of redemption. The father's willingness to subject his beloved son to forsakenness was matched by the son's willingness to be forsaken on behalf of his people in order to secure, to secure their salvation. It is an ironic indeed, it is ironic for both parties to a covenant to agree on forsakenness. But that is the basis of our salvation. In eternity past, the father and the son agreed that the father would forsake the son for the sake of his people. And the father agreed to it and the son agreed to it. And they were loyal in that love and the willingness to take on the curse all the way to the end. This mode of redemption through suffering, I think, is clearly seen in Isaiah 53. Many of us know this verse, like at the back of our hand. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. The critical point to see here is the one who smote and afflicted Christ was God Himself. It was God Himself who laid on the servant or put on him the iniquity that we deserved. At this point, the Father was not being disloyal in his love on the contrary he was maintaining his steadfast love which he declared from the beginning Isaiah 53 says continues yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So what does it mean that the Lord is pleased to bruise him? Is he some masochist that enjoys seeing his son suffer? Absolutely not. The reference to pleasure indicates that the father was pleased by the redemption accomplished in this manner. It pleased the father that his son was willing to give his life as a ransom for many. It pleased God that the son was willing to make himself of no reputation to be the redemption for the people. It pleased the father that the son did not depart from the plan that had been conceived from all eternity. The pleasure was in the redemption, not in the pain, endured by his son. And it's why at the end we read Mark 13 at the beginning, we see the same scene unfold in Luke 23 and we see what he cried out in his last breath in the gospel of Luke. This is what Jesus says, "Father, into my your hands I commit my spirit." And having said this he breathed his last last breath. If the son of God had thought that God had forsaken him permanently, rather than limiting how long he would forsake him so that he could accomplish the work of atonement, he would not have committed his spirit into his father's hands. But he does. He does. Because he knows that he has satisfied the requirements to bring back his people, you, to himself. By becoming the curse, by becoming the scapegoat, Jesus, the Son, and God the Father display their loyal love to you and show you what far-reaching tasks they're willing to perform to be able to look on you face to face and for you to enjoy the blessing of God, to bask in his glory. That is the loyal love of God and that is the God that we serve. Peace. (laughs)